Um, hey, my name is Dave Varga. It's great to be with you guys this morning. I got to say this about Billy. The guy's from Oklahoma, right? That's country. He doesn't know what a goat is. Like, he's sitting there like, is that, is that, I think it's a goat. I'm like, come on, Billy, you're better than that. You're from Oklahoma, you know. Um, so, yeah, my name is Dave Varga. I'm from the Chesterfield campus. It's great to be here this morning, and I have the honor to be on the teaching team as well. And so, uh, Billy called me. Actually, he texted me last week on my way to church, and he said, hey, Dave Varga, what are you doing? I love how he says that, too. Like, it's the Billy, right? Hey, Dave Varga, right? Uh, he, hey, what are you doing next weekend? And, and I knew what he was asking, so I was being a, kind of a clown to him. I was like, well, I think, like, Saturday we'll wake up. Maybe we'll have pancakes. And I kind of went through my day, and he called me, like, two seconds later. He's like, Real funny, you know what I meant, what are you doing next Sunday? And I'm like, you're giving me a week, bro, like a week to get ready, awesome. But uh, yeah, he double booked himself, so it's great to be here again, and I just want you guys to get to know me a little bit. My wife and I live in Richmond. It was a nice, easy drive. I turned, I had two turns to get here. It was fantastic. Uh, I, the lights, I, I, they're pretty much blinking when it's that early in the morning, so I didn't really have to stop or do anything. I have three boys, my wife and I, Laura, we have three boys, they're Josh, Caleb, and Asher. They're eight, six, and three. And if you notice the gray hairs, that's them. That is from them. Um, they are all boys. They love to wrestle. They love to beat up. They love to do crazy things. And it's, it's, kind, of, it's kind of funny because if, if you're a parent, you kind of get this. Like what you were like as a kid kind of comes back to haunt you when you have kids because your kids end up being the same way. Growing up in Richmond, we had a farm, dirt bikes, four-wheelers. I find myself doing the craziest of things because I had three older siblings, so I was always trying to keep up with them. Right? So as being the youngest, it was always like, hey, if they jumped the dirt bike that far, I could definitely jump it further, right? And so we had an honor amongst thieves with, with our parents that if they wanted to know what, how a broken bone happened, it was, we fell. What happened? I fell. <laughs> so yeah, there's a few people laughing because you did the same thing. What happened? I, I, I don't know. I just kind of, I fell. Like, really? You broke your collarbone? That falling? Yep, I did. But as I got older, I began to realize that falling wasn't as much fun anymore. At 30, when you fall really hard off a dirt bike, your soul tends to leave your body. Do you know what I'm talking about, right? It just leaves you lay there like not breathing. And so as I've gotten older, I stopped doing dumb stuff, but now I love to watch people do dumb stuff. So I have this thing where I love to watch videos of people hurting themselves. I don't know where it came from, but I can sit there and just giggle like nobody's business. Laura will walk in and she's like, I'm tearing up because I'm laughing so hard because a guy tried to do something and he wiped out. It's, it's me. So pray for my wife because I'm very childish that way. But the, the, Facebook, if you will, has learned some things about me, right? It's listening to me, I feel like. And it gave me a suggestion a while ago of a video that I might like. I don't know how it knew that because I liked this video, now it knows I like this video, but it was right. I watched this video 20 minutes I watched this video, waste of time, but it was, it was actually a really cool video. And the video was this, it was a house up on the top of a ridge with a river flowing beneath it. It must have been storm season because the river was just raging, it was flowing so hard and it was kind of like on a peninsula. And so as the river began to flow harder and harder and faster and faster, you saw the, 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 um, the land start eroding away, right? Slowly, piece by piece, you saw this like chunk of land just kind of disappear. And it was a time lapse, thank the Lord, because it would have been a lot longer than 20 minutes. But it was a time lapse, and you saw the river creep closer and closer and closer to the house. And I knew what was going to happen. I couldn't wait. I just couldn't wait to watch as the river eroded the foundation of the house away, and it just gets sucked into the river. And I was like, man, can you imagine being downstream? And you're like, I think that was a house, right? Like, it just sucked it right in. 
And so obviously I had to call Laura, my wife, and I'm like, you got to watch this video. It's amazing. And so she was watching it. And here's the difference between the two of us. She's watching it, and she goes, oh, man, I hope everyone's okay. I'm thinking, like, yes, bring on the water. This is amazing. And, like, if everyone's okay, they kind of, like, ruined the video for me. But I started to think, man, okay, maybe I really do hope everyone's okay. But it was a great video. And what I want you to do is I want you to put that in your mind for a second. This idea of this river flowing and slowly eroding away at the foundation of this house. I want you to keep thinking about that this morning as it erodes closer and closer to so far in to the point where the house doesn't stand a chance and it just gets sucked in. Because this morning as we read in the book of Revelations, we're talking about through our series called Drift, Jesus talks to the church of Pergamum. That's where we're going to be. He's talking to the church of Pergamum and he's warning them in this text. He's warning them saying, if you're not careful, if you don't hold fast, if you don't hold completely strong to the truths of Jesus, your foundations will be eroded away and you'll find yourselves being sucked into the river. You see, this morning as Jesus begins to talk to the church of Pergamum, he's also talking to us the same way, that if we're not careful, that our, our foundational truths will be eroded away slowly and we'll find ourselves be sucked into this thing of the world. If you will, if you open your Bibles with me this morning, Revelation chapter 2, we're going to be in verses 12 through 17. If you have your iPads, iPhones, laptops, whatever you bring, and I think they put it on the screen, so that should be pretty good. Let's read with me. But before we read, I always like to pray to invite God as we read his word. So bow with me in prayer quick here. God, our Heavenly Father, we are, we are just humbled at your presence. We are thankful this morning that we can wake up, we can grab some coffee and, and, and breakfast and come and just worship you freely. And God, as your word goes out, we pray that it goes out in truth, in simplicity, your words, God, not mine. And that, Lord, that you'll just kind of clear our minds and open our hearts to what your word says. May we be a people who don't take your words and manipulate them to what we want to hear, God, but that we'll be a people that hear your word and change our actions to glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. It says this in, verses, in, in verse 12 of chapter 2, it says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, The words of him who has the, 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 the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who are holding to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might not eat the food, so that they might eat the food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immoralities. So also you have some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This idea of a two-edged sword, if we read it, comes from the uh, chapter 1 of Revelation, verses 16 John is seeing the vision of, of Jesus in all of his glory for the first time. And you can imagine John's vocabulary must be a bit tough. To, as you're seeing this for the first time, how do you describe something you've never seen before? And so as he struggles to come up with the words, he uses things like this. He says, hair white like fresh snow, eyes like flames, feet of polished brass, a voice 
like the ocean's roar. And from his mouth came a two-edged sword. The idea of a two-edged sword, I want you to imagine what it is. No matter which way you swing that sword, it has effectiveness. And God's word this morning, and I want you to imagine that's what God's word is. It's this two-edged sword, effective whichever way he swings it. God's word has two edges to it. It can be both comforting and convicting, and it can bring blessings, and it can also bring discipline. In Matthew chapter 6, it was Jesus' early time here on earth in ministry. He says this. He says, do not be anxious. Your heavenly Father knows what you need. And yet a few moments later in in chapter 7, he says, you hypocrites, take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll be able to see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's. You see, the the, the word of God is a two-edged sword. And he's saying to the church of Pergamum this morning, he's going to talk about blessings and he's going to talk about discipline. The first thing that we see that as as the church, as he's talking to the church, as we we see ourselves, we can pull out of the text, is that we need to stand strong in adversity. Stand strong in the time of adversity. Jesus begins his talk to Pergamum with words of blessing. He says this, verses 12, he says, I know where you dwell. I know where you dwell. Where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name. You hold fast to my teachings. Even in the times of Antipas, my faithful servant, who was murdered among you in Satan's throne, or where Satan dwells, rather. In order to really understand what the people of Pergamum were going through, if you were a Christian at the time, let's, you have to understand where Pergamum was and what it was. It was a beautiful city on top of a mountain. And if you were standing on the edge of that city on a, on a clear day, you could see the Mediterranean Sea about 15 miles away with a valley green and beautiful. And so as you stared out, if you were a person coming to visit Pergamum for the first time, it was a sense of awe, of it's just this royal authority. But we see in the text here that it wasn't just all beautiful and nice, that there was a few things going on because Jesus says things like Satan's throne and where Satan dwells. And the people that lived there, it was occupied by Rome. It was a Greco-Roman rule, if you will. And so to understand what the the Greco-Romans were like, they weren't a one-God type of people. They had multiple gods. So if you needed love, you went to the God of love. If you needed healing, you went to the God of healing. If you needed water, God of water, so on and so forth. You kind of get the idea. And so Caesar, as he occupied the area, it was Caesar Augustus, he, he kind of capitalized on this multi-God kind of thing. And he said, hey, I brought prosperity to your, to your area. I brought prosperity. I brought stability. I should be on that same level of God, of your gods, small g, God. And so they built a temple to the Caesar, the first city, to have its own temple dedicated to Caesar worship. And every year people would come and they would pay homage to to Pergamum and to Caesar. And you can imagine what it must have been like to be a Christian at that time. In Pergamum, multiple gods, and you took none of them. Because you said there is only one God who manifested himself in Jesus, or through Jesus rather, on this earth. One God only. I will not bow my knee to anybody else Socially, suicide. Economically, suicide. You were ostracized for your beliefs. And Jesus says to them, he says this, he says, yet you held fast my name. 
in all that, even in the times of Antipas. And so he was one of the first martyrs in the, in, in the first, first century church. The idea of being a martyr, he was, it, legends has it that he was roasted alive in a bronze bowl. And yet you remain faithful. You remain faithful through all that. And what Jesus is saying this morning, that if you hold tight to my name, if you hold tight to the truths of what Jesus has, it's not going to be easy always. If you've been a Christian for any period of time, you know that. In fact, if you look at Jesus' life, it was not easy. But yet we hold fast to his name. We hold it to be true. And in the time of adversity, will we stand for Christ or will we let the world erode our foundations and become more like them? When everyone else around you is mocking God, will you stand up for him? Will we stand up when all of our friends are making fun of Christianity? Will we identify as a Christian? You see, the word of God has a two-edged sword and he starts with a word of blessing, but then he brings it right back with warning and rebuke to the church of Pergamum. He says this, but some of you, oh, sorry, I, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teachings of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat the food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immoralities. So also you have some who are holding the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And he says, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with my sword of my mouth. You see, Jesus this morning is calling us to repent, to walk away. And so what he says, pull this out of scripture. He says this, he says, return from your compromise. Those compromises that we've made in our lives where once things were wrong, but now they're okay. Once things were scripturally not okay, but now it's like, eh, we're fine. Like, it's not a big deal. He's saying, return from that. Repent. Come back to the truths of Jesus. And to understand what they were going through back then with Balaam and the Nicolaitans, not much is known about the Nicolaitans. But Balaam, it's a very, very um, long story in the book of Numbers, 22 through 24. We're not going to read the whole thing, but I'll summarize it as best I can. The Egyptians were being pulled out of captivity out of Egypt, or sorry, the Israelites. <laughs> the Israelites were being pulled out of captivity. And they were on their way to the promised land. And as they began to get close, the Moabite king Balak, he, he felt threatened by them, as he should. They, they had this superfood called manna that sustained them through their journey through the desert. They were getting water from rocks. The, the victories they had on the battlefield were just unprecedented. And as he should be nervous because they're coming to the promised land. And so he realized that his brute force had no match for their supernatural strength. He saw it over and over again with every other person who tried to go, or the, every other nation that tried to go against them. And so he hired a wizard-type character named Balaam to create a curse for the Israelites to stop them. He's like, supernatural against supernatural, I got this. He's like, all right, Balaam, do your thing. So Balaam came up with a curse, and he cursed the Israelites, and it came out as a blessing. So he went back to the drawing board, another curse came out as a blessing. Three times he tried it. Three times he cursed the Israelites and three times it came out as a blessing. And he realized that his supernatural had no match for the supernatural forces of the Israelite army, which was God. And so he decided, you know what? There's, we, have, we have brute force can't handle it. My supernatural can't handle their supernatural. I got this idea. 
Let's take the best-looking men and women we have in the Moabite nation, and we'll send them in to infiltrate their ranks from the inside out. And slowly they moved in, married their men, married their women, started inviting them to Moabite parties, Moabite barbecues, right? And as they, as they began coming closer and closer, they started, started ignoring the truths of we don't eat food sacrificed to other idols. They're like, hey, it's not a big deal. You're like, I'm your husband. I would never ask you to do something that was wrong, right? I'm your wife. It's my dad's house. Not a big deal. Just eat this food sacrificed to anybody. The sexual immorality is not a big deal. That's just who we are over here. And slowly but surely, bit by bit, it worked. The Israelites became more Moabites than Christians. They fell out of the blessing that was before them through the entire journey through the desert. They began to drift, if you will, away from the truth of God, and they became more and more and more worldly. James, in chapter 4, he doesn't mince words when he says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And if we look at that, he's not talking about people. He's not saying you can't have friends of the world. He's talking about the values of the world. He's speaking of the values. If you value this world more than you value God, you are an enemy of God. If you value your friendships, if you value your house, your cars, and everything more than God, here's the deal. He's not going to value you. James has no problem saying that to them. Because it's so true, the idea that it doesn't happen over, it doesn't just happen. It doesn't happen overnight. Satan's kind of smart when it comes to that stuff. He knows that if he were to stand before us and say, God's not real, we would know he's lying. But what if they started infiltrating the ranks? What if they started chipping away at our foundational truths, the things that we know are biblical, the things that we hold fast to, the things that we hold so strongly to chip away? It's not that wrong. It's, it's kind of wrong-ish. It's okay. It's more okay. It's more okay. It's not wrong at all. You see how easy it can do, yeah, how easy it can change. The believers there were, were fighting a battle against people who were saying, God is not the, Jesus is not the only way. There's a, there's a scripture that says, I am the way, the truth, and life. No man cometh to the Father except through me. And they were saying, not really. You can be a good person and still get to heaven. It's about love. It's not about Jesus. It's about doing right things, which isn't wrong. But it's about doing right for the sake of doing right, not for the sake of Jesus. And this morning, Jesus is calling the church of Pergamum and us to repent for, for drifting away from him. From drifting away from those truths that we so hold tightly when we first became Christians. Like, we knew these things were right. We knew these things were true. And now they're kind of ish. And he's calling us back to repent, to be the salt of the earth, the light on a hill, to bring him glory Always. He's calling us back to that this morning. Throughout all the New Testament, over and over and over again, we are warned, hold tight to the truth of Scripture. Hold tight to Jesus. Don't lose focus. It's so easy to drift. It's so easy to drift. Titus, Timothy, Peter, all those chapters, over and over and over again, repeatedly, hold tight so that you will be ready. It's the staunch realization that in the church, of, in, in the city of Pergamum, which is now called uh, Bergala, it's in Turkey. There is no church. There's no Christian presence. There's no group of believers in that city. 
they did not hold fast. They did not hold tightly to the truth of Jesus, and there is no church there. You have to understand, Jesus is very passionate about his name, and he will do whatever it takes to make sure his name goes out in truth, in purity, no matter what. It was a few weeks ago, I read this article. Um, It was back in April, there was an interview done by the New York Times. And as I read it, um, I'm not going to lie that it was a bit upsetting, it was a bit disgusting, but it was a lady, um, it was a guy interviewing this lady, her name is Serena Jones, and she's the president of Union Theological Seminary School. And, and I won't read it, I didn't bring it with me, but I, I've read it enough times and that I can quote most, almost the entire thing. But he asks her, he says, well, good morning, Reverend. To start with, do you believe that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was real? Was it a real thing or was it just something talked about? Was it just this idea? And the reverend says, well, I got a little bit of a problem with that. You see, anybody who thinks that the resurrection of Jesus was actual real event is kidding themselves. Kidding themselves. Okay, that's the only part. Like, it gets worse after that. Jesus is an omnipotent. He even said something in the, in the realm of um, God would never, the, the, the crucifixion wasn't something that God orchestrated from heaven. It was just a man-hating type thing, and it wasn't actually real. It was just something to show the love that we should have for each other because that's what it's about. Now, understand this. Theological seminary school. Not seminary school. Theological. Which means that it's supposed to be theologically sound. It's supposed to be Bible-believing, Bible-preaching. Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life. And yet, it's not real. It's kind of just about the love that somebody would show for the other person. That's what we're to do completely crazy how far we've drifted. Didn't happen overnight. Slow chipping away at the foundational truths that we hold so tightly to. At Woodside Bible, I'll be honest with you, I've been part of Woodside for two years, and they hold so strongly this position of preaching the Word of God. It's, it's, it's actually very difficult. The classes that I had to attend, the books that I had to read, I'm not going to lie. I'm not a reader. I'm more of a listener. And the books that <laughs> Steve really gave me, I was like, uh, dude, I graduated already. I don't, I don't read books anymore. Like, <laughs> like I, that, that stopped about seven years ago when I graduated from that. Actually, it was 13 years ago. Wow. I graduated 13 years ago from college. Um, but yeah, I stopped reading back then. Um, so, but it, they hold so strongly to it that they partner with Grace Seminary who will not veer from the truth of God, from the Bible. They refuse to veer from it. It might not be popular. It might not be the most cool thing to do around the block, but they will not, will not go right or left from the gospel. We partner with people in Thailand and the Ukraine as a church that are committed to bringing up pastors who will go out and teach the word of God in its purity so that when we stand before God as a church leadership, we can say we did the best we could to hold tightly to these truths. And the question I have for you today, are we holding as a church... Chesterfield, Romeo, Pontiac, Plymouth, as a church, are we holding tight to the truth of Jesus? Is it something that we just do on Sunday? You know, it's easy to hold tightly to it here in church with a bunch of friends who are all Christians, but what happens when we go out to the workplace? What happens when we go out to the construction sites? Are we that same Christian that we are today? Because it's not easy. 
Are we, are we identifying as Christ? Or are we doing what C.S. Lewis calls, we want to be in the inner circle. We want to be cool. We want to be popular socially, economically. We want it all. Here on Sunday, we can pretend. But outside of here, we'll step at anybody's head to get to the top. Jesus is calling us this morning to repent, to hold tightly to the truth of God. The last thing that we see in the scripture, Jesus telling the church of Pergamum and to us, is to trust courageously in Jesus' victory. To trust courageously in his victory, knowing that he was victorious. Read with me in, in verse 17. It says, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. If we hold tightly to the truths of Jesus, if we conquer, if we hold tightly to it, at the end of it all, we can stand before God and say, we did the best we could to hold tightly to this book, to what you have written, to the truths of Jesus. And we pray that at the end, we can hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. You may enter. You see this idea of a new identity, the idea of manna, it's very symbolic, if you will, in the Old Testament. If you read in Numbers, that's one of the places you can read about it. Manna was a type of superfood given to the Israelites to sustain them through their journey through the desert. They actually took a vial of it and they put it in the Ark of the Covenant to remember that God promised, the covenant that God had with his people, that he would always be there to sustain them. And this morning what he's saying through that is that when times are tough, when all the neighbors around you are partying like rock stars and you're not going to, you're going to stand for Jesus in that moment to glorify him, he will give you the strength. He will give you the manna that you need to sustain you through this walk. Because again, it's not easy. If you're a new Christian, I'm sorry to say that it won't always be beautiful out. It won't always be easy. At some point, you're going to have to take a stance for Christ, and that will cost you a relationship or two. At some point, it's going to cost you a promotion. At some point, it's going to make you not cool. Are we okay with that? Are we okay with saying, for the glory of God, I will do whatever it takes? And when we say that, when we hold tightly to that, Jesus promises manna from heaven. The hidden manna that maybe we don't see right in front of us. We don't think that we can make it through this battle. I don't think I have the strength to fight another day no matter what you're going through. Jesus is saying, hold on, I'm sending you this superfood. I'm sending you me. The, this idea of a white stone, there's a bunch of areas where we can see what it was back in the Roman Empire. One of was if you were, um, if you were accused of a crime and you stood before the judge and you were found not guilty... You were given a white stone. You were to carry that white stone around the, the city. And if anybody said, hey, weren't you that guy that was accused of? You could pull out of your pocket. You had a white stone. You were clean. You were forgiven. You weren't guilty. On the flip side, though, if you were found guilty, you had a black stone in your pocket. And so some, somebody called you out in the city. Well, weren't you that guy that? And you're like, you had to show him the black stone. White stone meaning forgiven, pure. The idea of, of the name, of not knowing what the name is, it's highly symbolic. We can read about it in Revelation chapter 19 is a great place that we can see it again. 19, it's verses 11 through 16, and it says this. Then I was given, then I saw heaven open, 
John's writing this, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. His eyes like flames of fire, and his heads, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword. On his robe and on his thigh, he has the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You see, this morning, when you accept Jesus into your life, when you become a follower of Christ, you are given a new identity. You are given this new identity, and it's not an identity that is found in the house that you live in, the cars that you drive, the job that you have, how much money you make. Your identity is in Jesus. It's not about being cool. It's not about having all the friends and having all the parties at the house. Your identity is found in Jesus. When we put our faith in him, when we trust him fully, when we hold tightly to his truth, to what he's done and who he is, our identity is in him. So the question I have this morning, are we holding as a church, are we holding tightly to that? Are we holding tightly to the truth of Jesus? Are we holding tightly to the, the gospel? The gospel being this, that God in heaven, almighty, all-powerful, loving, and yet just, sent his only son down to this earth. He lived a perfect life, blameless in every way. He was accused and he was found not guilty. And yet he was crucified for our sin. Some might think not orchestrated by God, but here at Woodside, we believe completely orchestrated by God because there was only one way for us to have a relationship with him, and that was the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus. And he was crucified and killed, only to be raised three days later, never to die again for you and for me, for those of us who gave our lives to the Lord, who say, I don't want to live for me anymore. I want to live for Jesus he has given us a new identity. This morning, maybe, uh, maybe this is your first time here at church. Maybe this is your first time in a long time at church. You've been invited, somebody, boyfriend, girlfriend invited you, neighbor, friend, old basketball colleague. That actually happened. I invited a good friend this morning. He lives across the street. Never been to church in his life. It's like, hey, I'm going to be a Romeo Woodside across the street. Will you show up? And he, he responded like, hey, thanks for letting me know. That was it. That was like, that's a great way of saying I'm not coming. And he came this morning. It's really weird. I'm glad I didn't see him because I would have been more nervous. But are you, are you here for the first time and you, and you heard this idea of a new identity in Jesus? If that's something that you've heard for the first time and you want that relationship, if you want that new identity, if you want that stone in your pocket that is white, clean, forgiven, relationship with Jesus forever. Find somebody with a name tag afterwards. They'll put you in the right direction to talk to me, talk to Billy next week, to talk to somebody. But don't let, don't wait. Hold tightly to it. Find somebody, pray with them. But maybe, this is probably a lot of us, because this is me. We've been going to church a long time. Been a Christian for quite some time. Have we let those foundational truths be eroded away? Have we as a church or as individuals allowed those things to kind of creep in? Have we been people who have let the world creep in to here and not us that way? This morning, I pray this, that we 
as a church, no matter where we're at, the church of God, Bible-believing churches, period, that we will not compromise, that we will not let the, the raging waters of this world erode our foundations away until the point where we're sucked away and completely irrelevant. We may be a church, we, may we be a church who never lets that happen. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, humbled before you this morning, we pray that we're a church that holds tightly to your name, that never veers left or right. No matter how unpopular it is, individually, structurally as a church, corporately, God, that we always hold tightly to it. It might not be popular, God, but we want to be able to stand before you one day and say we did the best we could to hold to the word of God and not veer from it. Lord, if there's somebody here this morning that needs a relationship with you, we pray as a church that they come to know you so that they might have a new name, a new identity, and be able to rejoice in that reward waiting for them in heaven. As we go out to work this week, that we won't compromise our beliefs, but that we'll stand for Christ. In Jesus' name we pray.